Hello, shalom, and welcome to Robscast, the independent voice of the Middle East. I'm Ibrahim Abu Ahmad. And I'm Ksenia Svetlova. ROPES stands for the Regional Organization for Peace, Economics, and Security. We are a young organization that works to lay the ground for a post-conflict Middle East by connecting forward-thinking Israelis and Palestinian emerging leaders with like-minded peers from the region. We share a holistic vision of the Middle East where everyone has more to gain from conflict resolution and integration than lose. If you are looking to hear more information about ROPES, please visit our website at ropes.org. And our very special guest for today is Dr. Najat As-Said. Dr. As-Said is an author, researcher, news contributor, and analyst focusing on the JCC and the MENA region. She's also a consultant in strategic communication and crisis media management, certified in digital and social media marketing and communications. She is an adjunct professor in the American University in the Emirates College of Mass Media and Communication. She's also a columnist for both Al Etihad and Arab news newspapers. Dr. Najat, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this episode. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure too. I guess uh, I would start with uh, a question uh, about uh, your book, because I know you've authored a book uh, about Twitter diplomacy mm-hmm. and about uh, during the times of the Abraham Accords and mm-hmm. about how it seems that uh, we witness another episode of uh, fascinating drama right now on Twitter and other social media. We see that everything is boiling with news about the possible uh, normalization between agreement mm-hmm. between Israel and Saudi Arabia. In your opinion and expertise, how does media in general influence political processes? Uh, what road, uh, role does it play, I guess, in general and in this particular case? Well, um, media can influence uh, the political process through different ways. Uh, one of the main ones is uh, information uh, dissemination. Uh, now there's unusual intensity, as we see in the news about the possible normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And this tactic may often be intentional to test the public's op- uh, opinion and prepare it for possible normalization. So all of these kind of uh, uh, um, news uh, leaks that we see, um, it is intentional to test the public's opinion and to see whether they are accepting, not accepting, especially from the Saudi side. Uh, So from this point, media can shape the public opinion with the repetition. And this is what we call in uh, one of the media theories, uh, the cultivation theory. So that's why you see bulk of news these days, like so unusual, like uh, about the normalization about, about Saudi Arabia and Israel, Saudi about, uh, until the word normalization becomes so, when it, the time comes, it's, it doesn't make uh, a really a big shock uh, to the Saudi public specifically, because I don't think it's, it will make any kind of shock to the Israelis anyways. Um, but the, the Saudi side, maybe, uh, no, it will make shock if you don't uh, prepare them. So that's why we see intensity of this kind of news. So this is one of the tools of media. Another way is uh, through the agenda setting. And we know one of the main components of uh, media 
is the agenda setting. So what is the, uh, the agenda setting? The media has the power to set the political agenda by deciding which stories to cover pr prominently. So the media doesn't force you actually to uh, to uh, to what to see or what to listen or what to read but but but, may, but uh, by making this news so prominent it actually grabs you uh, unconsciously that this is the most important news and i have to focus on this because it was so much uh, intensified in the in the news internationally locally and re regionally when media outlets give extensive coverage to a certain issue, it can draw the attention to this issue and encourage discussions about the, uh, among the public and policymakers. And this is this is the main thing about it. So when it makes the news uh, this type of topic or issue so prominent, it forces uh, unconsciously the public and policymakers to think about it. So what about if it happens? What what what, what will be the reaction? So this is the kind of uh, uh, thoughts that will come to policymakers. And from the public, uh, you will see more negotiations about it. So it won't be a taboo like before. So people uh, people who are uh, like more open to about it will be encouraged to talk about it much more. And the people who are against it will be will putting all their concerns on the table. Uh, so th this is one of the uh, tools of uh, agenda setting. Uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, the tools of media in general. And one of it is agenda setting. In addition, media can be a vital component of public uh, diplomacy uh, efforts, uh, helping countries and leaders shape their image on the international stage. Uh, through media campaigns and, stra uh, and strategic messaging, uh, countries can promote their foreign policy objectives. So this is the so uh, the main component of public diplomacy. And even if you go to any uh, uh, foreign uh, of um, a foreign agency institute, the foreign ministry, or uh, whenever you see the public diplomacy department, you see media as a major major component of public diplomacy because it shapes the the country's uh, image internationally. So uh, so when when a country has a, a distorted image in a certain area, it has to activate its public diplomacy, uh, because, uh, especially through the media. And this is uh, the power of soft power, actually. And uh, actually, we are living in the in the age of, uh, of soft power these days, that, that you can make whole changes politically through activating your soft power. And one of it is the public diplomacy. However, in my so opinion, Jack, like just yes. ask you small questions here. Um, so you often join uh, as an expert the I twenty four media uh, from Dubai. Uh, you are based there, so I just wanted to ask you, you know, so how is it reflected right now uh, in the media in the Gulf, specifically in the UAE? Uh, what is their mindset there? Uh, because you are following the news, you are following what people write in social networks. Uh, is it uh, as prominent as it used to be before the Abraham Accords were uh, concluded? So you're saying what's the uh, opinion of uh, the people of the uh, UAE here about uh, the normalization between uh, so the, the possible normalization? Also, between... you know, is it uh, very high on the agenda? Because you mentioned the agenda setting that the media does not uh, necessarily tell us uh, what to think, but uh, it sets for us what to think about. Uh, yeah. So uh, did you mention that, uh, you know, that you have like a large volume of news that is dedicated to it or is it just uh, as usual? 
Well, um, uh, honestly, I see this agenda setting regarding the possible normalization and or the push of the normalization between uh, the uh, between Saudi Arabia and Israel is coming from international media, not from the local media of the UAE. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I don't see that much uh, focus here in the local news and even um, and the uh, but, you know, because the international media, especially the U.S. media is so, so powerful. So whenever you see something really highlighted in the in the U.S. media, it will have its impact on the other media outlets uh, globally. So from from this point, it has its impact. But from the local media here in the UAE, um, it, it, there, there's not much attention. First of all, Dubai respects the sovereignty of other nations and does not intrude into their private uh, affairs. Dubai and the UAE in general. Um, however, since the UAE forged its historic peace agreement with Israel, it will it will definitely welcome further peace agreements between mm -hmm. Arab nations and Israel. Uh, because such agreements have the potential to reshape the geopolitical dynamics of the Middle East, fostering regional stability, and potentially aiding in the resolution of long-standing uh, conflicts in the region. And uh, and the most important thing for a uh, business-minded country like the UAE and Dubai specifically, uh, it, it definitely will foster and will improve economic and technological cooperation among these countries. So from that perspective, the UAE uh, will uh, welcome that and that will reinforce that that if something like this happened that the step that the uae has done the the bold step that the uae has done and even bahrain uh, that means it is it is something right if a big country like you uh, like saudi arabia did it that means that what they have done is right so that will boost even and uh, and sustain what they have done in 2020. Mm -hmm. Kind of in a way, like uh, during Camp David, uh, uh, Egypt uh, concluded peace agreement with Israel, and then uh, in during Oslo Accords, it welcomed uh, Palestinian autonomy and then Jordan and then other Arab countries because it was the step in the direction that they already took. Yes, yes, but uh, but however, however, um, this is the kind of um, I don't know if you call it double standard or what exactly. Uh, you see, some of the Arab countries are, for example, are not against uh, countries like Egypt or like Morocco. Like the last, uh, if we take example, the last Abraham Accord. If you see in that Abraham Accord uh, countries, what is uh, the most countries that were attacked? You will see number one, UAE. And then comes uh, Bahrain, and Bahrain to a lower standard. But UAE was number one. However, we heard nothing, nothing about uh, Morocco uh, and uh, Sudan. Uh, on the on the contrary, some some uh, countries think that what uh, what Morocco has done is is a good step. So here comes the the, the 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 double standard. It is okay for certain countries, but when it comes to other countries, especially the GCC countries, because they are rich countries, uh, no. Normalization is uh, uh, is not allowed for you. Uh, so that's uh, so. This is what sometimes shock the the public in the Gulf. And when it comes to Saudi Arabia, I'm sure it will be even the attack will be worse than UAE. Uh, not only because it's a rich country and it's one of the GCC countries, because it is also the beholder of the two holy mosques. And I'm sure that no matter how much there are leaks and preparation 
uh, forward that comes years before the actual uh, normalization, there will be still attacks from certain uh, uh, certain people and certain countries. And I know these countries very well from where it will come. So I guess so, uh, my question would be, if, if that's the situation in the UAE, I'm wondering about what's going on on the street in Saudi Arabia? Because you mentioned one of the things that social media does is to test uh, the discussion on the street. So what are the voices in Saudi Arabians are saying? And actually, have you seen an involvement in the discussion? Have it changed? Are the views about the normalization changed throughout the past year? Or is it the same? How, how do you see it on your end? Well, uh, this is a very important question. And honestly, I couldn't give you an accurate 100% answer unless I myself go there, do a survey, do a study, make a focus group, make inter interviews uh, in order to give you a really 100% response to your uh, important question. However, uh, since I am from there and my I have relatives, I have uh, friends over there, um, um, let me tell you. Uh, first of all, let us uh, let me give you an an, uh, an overview about uh, the social uh, network. What I see in the social networks, um, often uh, often th those social networks do not um, uh, do not um, you know provide a comprehensive representation of the entire society, uh, because uh, particularly since a substantial portion of users are young. Uh, never, nevertheless, opinions expressed within these networks tend to be diverse. Some individuals are very enthusiastic about normalization efforts, while others uh, maintain skepticism, mm -hmm. and some uh, outright oppose such individuals. They are totally against it. So uh, on my observations, the prevailing sentiments on the ground, and that's what I saw in my last trip uh, specifically to Saudi Arabia, uh, the uh, the overall sentiment to, uh, to uh, um, appears to be uh, to be opposing to the normalization, encompassing both the younger and older generation, um, in, in, uh, driven from a different perspective. So let me give you an uh, an example. Um, so if we divide them to the older generation and the uh, and the younger generation, the older generations uh, resist uh, this kind of uh, idea because um, to them. Uh, the Palestinian issue is still very significant and it is still engraved in their minds and uh, hearts. Uh, and uh, it's really deeply rooted from a religious uh, uh, perspective and a, uh, and a bringing of many Saudis. We, you know, Saudi Arabia was under a very ultra conservative system for many, many, many years. So we don't expect that this kind of uh, modernization and uh, the Vision 230 that just was just implemented two, three years ago, it will change the overall society. This will take long time because it was, you know, the country specifically was under this kind of ultra conservative system for more than four decades. From we're talking, I'm talking here specifically from year 1979 which is the year of the revolution of Iran. And that we, we nobody can imagine the impact of the Iranian revolution on the Saudi society and the Saudi system until that what we see, uh, uh, you know, um, until uh, MBS ca came and he made this uh, kind of uh, bold uh, changes. 
Uh, it is true that uh, the changes started after the September 11 from the pressure of the US to open up the system. And even when King Abdullah came, he made a lot of changes, and especially with the scholarships that happened. But the true, the true aggressive changes happened during the MBS. However, if we go to the younger generation, the opposition is often grounded in a perceived lack of tangible benefits resulting from normalization. The people, the younger generation keeps asking what other countries benefit. You know, the, the, so the, that shows me that the media is lacking of showing the benefits that the other countries gain uh, to the public. So uh, here, uh, the concern, uh, there's not much concern about uh, the Palestinian coups to the younger generation as much as the older generation. But they keep asking what what benefits I will, I will gain. I didn't see much gain happen to the UAE, for example, and Bahrain. What uh, I see the Israelis gained more than the others. That, that's what I hear them saying. Uh, so... Uh, so here, and also they say, like countries like Egypt and Jordan uh, made this kind of normalization because because they were like uh, they want to stop the war. But uh, but in our case, what we need to stop. Uh, so it's not that uh, that urgent for us. So here they're they're thinking they're thinking about uh, uh, you, you know about this kind of normalization from na uh, from national. Uh, concerns more than international or uh, Arab nationalism, like the older generation. So this is oh, this is what I see, and also because you know um, when you are ignorant about the benefits and uh, and about what's going on on the ground, it's easy to be influenced by people who have information. So what I saw, even the younger generation who are neutral, who are not against or or, or pro. Okay, when they talk to their parents and their parents so much against it, they get influenced and they start to be against it because they don't have the rationale to talk mm -hmm. to, uh, to when they negotiate with their family to defend it. They don't have information. So accordingly, they get influenced by their parents. It's interesting what you're saying, because my immediate expectation would be that people will be pushed towards the Palestinian uh, support of the Palestinian case because of social media, like meaning that it will be more prominent among the younger generation rather than the old. So it's interesting that you're saying it's actually the opposite, the other way around. No, it is the other way around because now, especially also uh, with the younger generation, especially also with the Vision 2030 and what uh, MBS is, uh, is imposing, uh, the identity of the country has changed uh, from, uh, from Islamism uh, to uh, to uh, nationalism. Uh, so accordingly, instead of uh, uh, the the older generation were more uh, influenced by the Arab nationalism of Nasser, and then after that, uh, after the the, uh, the late sixties, they were um, uh, they were influenced by the Islamism uh, that happened after the Iranian Revolution, and then the Ikhwan, and then all, all of that. But the younger generation, no, they are more pragmatic. They are all only thinking what benefits my country. Uh, whatever benefits my country, I will go for it. If this thing doesn't benefit my country, and accordingly, I uh, eventually I won't gain anything. Why will I go for it? Very pragmatic way of thinking. No gain, no uh, <laughs> no encouragement. This is how they think. Dr. Najat, just a small remark and a question in this regard. You were mentioning, of course, the 
uh, influence of the social media and so on. And uh, I'm thinking about uh, various, perhaps malign information campaigns that are running on social media when you actually cannot tell uh, uh, who is the person who is uh, dispersing the information, um, who tries uh, to destabilize perhaps to use fake news. And uh, as far as I know from my friends in Israel who explored the scene, uh, you have now Iran uh, that is playing uh, quite a big role in, uh, you know, disseminating some news about Israeli-Saudi uh, re reconciliation or uh, normalization uh, in this regard. So, you know, this is something that uh, you cannot disregard, that there are also uh, a, a part uh, from the official uh, players uh, who uh, push the information uh, in various sources, uh, you have also the unofficial and also uh, you know, truthful uh, fake uh, uh, sources uh, of uh, the information, and it's very dangerous. Uh, let me tell you something uh, uh, here, uh, please. Uh, from, and here I'm talking as uh, a media expert, yeah. okay? In this age, uh, you know, um, uh, and uh, there's something, um, you know, one of the theories that came up uh, is the use and uh, use and gratification theory. What does that mean? Be due to the many channels and due to the many social media outlets and due to the, uh, uh, the huge source of information. Um, and now you don't have uh, the bullet effect of media. It's not like when I see leakage or any information coming from Hezbollah or from Iran or from whatever hostile country, I will be influenced. Even the younger generation, by the way, they are very uh, alert, maybe maybe even much more than the older generation because they, because they are exposed to multi source of information. So so here, so here, um, you know, those who got influence um, either one of the two. Either they they are truly believing in what those people are saying. So when they talk, when those people um, you know uh, put this information in the social media, they tickle something that is subtle in them. They are they are truly actually believing in what they they are saying. Like um, they have this kind of hostility towards Israel, whether through the textbooks or through their upbringing. Um, you know, mind you, that the family atmosphere also influenced. The, the 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 younger generation more than the social media by the way okay so here so here when they listen to those people you know and with the repetition it, it tackles something that it is there and also the other the other uh, part that gets influenced those ignorant who do not have information at all and the, actually those are the most highly targeted by any kind of social media influencer and media in general they, they don't target people who have uh, uh, opinionated people, whether the young or the old. They, they target people who are clueless, who do not have information. So accordingly, any information will come, will have an impact up on them. This is the dangerous part. And this is what we need to be really uh, uh, aware and alert about. Those who do not have any idea, do not have any idea about, for example, what's the benefits uh, of, what are the benefits of uh, of yeah. of uh, such peace agreements sure. uh what what is the actual nature of israel uh actually what what uh, what people see on tv is horrible uh, they always see it as a hostile country occupier they see the palestinians are fragile and and victims and uh, tortured and uh, and uh, spilled out of their lands by the israelis so when they hear such th see these things and uh, any kind of information the social media they get influence 
and with what uh, whatever they hear from their family that even reinforces it. But because they are clueless, they don't have the information, whether religiously, uh, what is Judaism, they always, you know, mix it with Zionism, okay? And it is, uh, and with the conspiracy theories uh, that they are like, uh, you know, they're feeding them with. And also they don't have in, any kind of information about the Israeli people who are they, who they are, okay? Because they are not exposed to them. And also they don't see the benefits because because uh, they don't know what kind of gain their country will will gain, whether or economically, uh, educationally, whatever. So and now on that on that uh, specific issue, I think it's uh, important to lay down these things, these achievements for people who don't know. So I guess my question would be now we're looking at three years to the Abraham Accords. Uh, could you highlight to us some of the successes that you've seen and some of the challenges that we're still facing today? Uh, what are the most important and interesting developments that you've seen so far in the past three years? Uh, and even also some of the goals that still haven't been achieved yet, and we're still looking to achieve them in the future. Okay. Um, actually, uh, in summary, I will tell you. And um, what what has proven really successful in the Abraham Accord countries, especially in the UAE where I live now, uh, is the normal uh, is the business normalization. The business normalization turned to be excellent, excellent. Uh, it couldn't be better from all fields. Call it from trading, from health, from science, everything of technology. It's number one. Okay, it couldn't be better. But the frustration part, in my point of view. And the short uh, outcoming, even and why it is so frustrating to me, because I personally was involved to, uh, in it. Uh, it is the people-to-people -people peace. Honestly, honestly, I I really don't like to say that, but it turned to be unsuccessful, uh, or it didn't match the expectation, the minimum expectation, until now. Uh, so that that's why uh, its impact on the region uh, is quite limited. It we returned back to the box number one government to government relationship so it uh, uh, until now i i uh, all the, uh, the 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 attempts of um, uh, of people to people peace uh, have uh, to me failed unfortunately uh, the cultural events uh, the educational events uh, until now uh, for example for me i couldn't even talk about the abraham accord in educational institutes i don't have the but because i don't have i don't have the backup there's no strategy at all how we can um, uh, work, how we can disseminate such information to the students from elementary until the college nothing and nothing on the contrary faculty members who are against the abraham accords are now louder than when it started in the 2020 and and those who are pro the abraham accords like me are marginalized so so this is this is the problem this is the problem so it, when when it uh, uh, unfortunately if it failed in a country like uae that has been establishing that the tolerance and diversity and coexistence since its establishment in the early 80s so what we imagine in a country like saudi arabia that was uh, under a very rigid and ultra, ultra, ultra conservative religious system for decades. That's so, what frustrates so, me. Uh, first of all, I have to tell you that also on a personal uh, level, 
uh, it's very upsetting uh, to listen to it. Of course, uh, you know, we in ROPES, uh, we do everything possible in order to specifically focus on the people-to-people -people, uh, relations in the region with a holistic uh, vision uh, of the Middle East, where everyone has a place under the sun. We were blessed by our Middle Eastern uh, sun. Sometimes it's even too much. Uh, but uh, what we mean is that uh, our programs focus specifically on uh, also educational aspect uh, and uh, bringing uh, the emerging leaders of the region together, uh, Emiratis, Israelis, Palestinians, Bahrainis, Egyptians, Jordanians, and everybody else. And we absolutely hope that it will be possible to promote furthermore uh, these initiatives. Uh, of course, for that, we need uh, also the blessings of the respective governments, but we also need people who believe in it, like you said, uh, people who are uh, enthusiastic about it and see how the region can transform completely uh, with the help of uh, such uh, initiatives and, uh, and uh, again, you know, provide something more, uh, something uh, regional, uh, something that could be a frame uh, for the Middle East tomorrow, uh, perhaps more EU-styled, uh, something that uh, could indeed uh, give equality and place and a voice and a possibility for cooperation uh, and uh, friendship between uh, various partners in the Middle East. Definitely. Definitely, yes. And also, we have to focus on the right channels. The right channels, to me, is not only to talk to the elites. The right channels is to, to talk from the bottom up, from the grassroots. And in order to make an impact in any society uh, as a uh, you know people-to-people -people piece, you have to start with two channels. First, education. Second, the media. And I see those two channels are very weak. So no matter how much you do programs, if you don't tackle those two channels, education and media, all your efforts will go in vain. That's my point of view, honestly. You're absolutely right. So, and uh, specifically for 2023 and now 2024, ROPE's program focus on both media and education. Uh, anybody who is interested to uh, seek more information about our activities and future programs, just log in to ropes.org. So Najat, jumping from our region to international arena, to the global power competition, so it seems that, uh, you know, uh, we, we hear now uh, when we talk about normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Abraham Accords, of course, um, uh, we hear that just like in Camp David Accords of 79, there is a lot of uh, involvement of a foreign power, specifically the US, but even more so a result of global power competition. Which global power, in your opinion, will have an upper hand in this case? Uh, promotion uh, of uh, a wider deal uh, between uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, US, and uh, eventually Israel? Okay, this is also a very important question. Uh, so uh, several global powers, including the United States, China, Russia, and the Europe uh, European Union, hold significant interest in the Middle East uh, with, the, uh, with their influence varying depending on specific contexts and regional policies they pursue. So this, uh, so you have those those powerful countries globally that are looking forward for uh, for for such involvement. But in my perspective, uh, the United States stands out as a key player in mediating new peace agreements. 
this is primarily due to its historical inv involvement in the, in the region and the presence of a substantial and influential Jewish community. So because we, if you want to make a role in such, in such, um, in such mediating, mediate uh, uh, important mediation you have to have a very his, uh, long historical involvement and there must be involvement so we here we see in the united states there's a huge uh, influential jewish community that that can play a role uh, compared to the other countries the other powerful countries however however the efficacy of the us in this role may be undermined by a divided foreign policy of the U.S. approach and the absence of bipartisan uh, consensus. That's what really frustrates me currently about the U.S. foreign policy now, this kind of division or hatred between the parties. Uh, successful peace agreements required skilled negotiators, such as Jared Kushner. Uh, I am one of those, honestly, who are really admiring Jared Kushner. Why? Because I saw him really genuine about this kind of uh, peace agreement. He did his homework from the from day one about it. He didn't just come like this administration over a sudden, let us make normalization between Israel and this, uh, Saudi Arabia. So th this this shows me as, uh, as a political observer and analyst uh, that they are doing that currently for political gain and maybe electrical uh, gain, electoral gain not a genuine peace agreement. Uh, so successful peace agreements require, uh, so uh, who played a pivotal role in, in uh, like Jared Kushner played a pivotal role in engineering, engineering the Abraham Accords. So unfortunately, the current administration may lack comparable expertise, and there appears to be a sudden emphasis on this Saudi Israeli normalization, possibly for this political gain, electoral, you can call it electoral consideration, rather than a genuine person uh, of peace. This approach contracts with potential for initiating the process at the beginning of the presidential term. So if they were really genuine about this peace agreement between those two countries, why they didn't continue what the Trump administration has done from the very beginning? On the contrary, they were against it. They were undermining, uh, undermining it only because it comes from the Trump administration, with, which we see it here in the, in the GCC and the Middle East, very silly. And this shows the division of this country. They were, uh, on the contrary, they were attacking Saudi Arabia. They were calling it a pariah state. And also they were, by being so much pro the Iranian regime and supporting its nuclear prog program, they even made the Israeli part so worried uh, about their security concerns. Mm -hmm. And that's what made this kind of government came because they were not, uh, they saw the current administration is unreliable to protect them. So they have to be responsible about their own security. So this is the problem. This is the problem here. The United States is the best, however, because of this, the kind of division, because of this lack of consistency, uh, it might not be number one, even though it's supposed to be number one in this kind of peace agreement. So mm -hmm. given the fluctuation nature of US foreign policy, the involvement of less experienced officials, the initiative might shift to other countries which, like China, which is emerging as a contender to the US. This is how I see it.
So, you know, we discussed uh, the international influence and its uh, attempt to uh, create grand peace agreements. But we do also know that 21 years ago, Saudi Arabia came with a, a peace initiative, the Arab Peace Initiative. It's 21 years ago now uh, that uh, we saw an attempt like that, and it was actually ratified by the Arab uh, League. But uh, my and question... the Organization Islamic Conference also. And I exactly. And uh, the question is, uh, you know, it's after two decades later, the question is, we didn't progress much. Is the air peace initiative still uh, is it possible to revive? Uh, would the Saudi Arabia consider after normalization, maybe pushing forward this initiative and not looking at the American influence in order to shape the region, but to take it as the, as we say in our own hands here? And the question is, after normalization, will it still be relevant? Well, um, to, to me, there must be a, like um, revival of this peace initiative. You couldn't just uh, uh, talk about it, uh, it because it just it, it, um, it happened twenty years uh, twenty years uh, uh, years ago. Uh, so, uh, but it has to be revived, and that's what actually happened. The Arab Peace Initiative uh, uh, actually was revived in September uh, twenty twenty two. And uh, the, um, it was the revival happened between Saudi Arabia, the AU, and the Arab League, uh, and they were like meeting in order to revive certain points, which is first of all in the Arab-Israeli conflict, the alarming the deterioration of the humanitarian uh, situation, the growing th uh, the growing th uh, threats on the two-state solution with the rapid growth uh, growth of settlements point to an explosive situation that may erupt. Uh, at any time and the spiral into new wave of violence or even war threatening uh, the people of Palestine and the widened region. So these are the points that they have uh, just discussed uh, lately in September 2022, uh, because if you want uh, to, uh, to, re to uh, revive the Arab Peace Initiative that happened 21 years ago, um, you have to uh, uh, to, uh, to see what, uh, what actually uh, the main obstacles that is uh, that is uh, that is putting in ahead uh, the uh, to make it actually being uh, accomplished uh, so so what what are what are they in their opinion is a humanitarian situation and also the growing uh, uh, settlement um and so we are talking about two state solution while well, there are like more settlements so how we, how we can actually accomplish this so uh, so th th these are the points that ne need to be uh, uh, that need to be discussed. Are we still uh, going to be uh, clinged to that idea of the two-state solution? Is it doable? Is it not? So, um, and, uh, so here we have to discuss things uh, more uh, comprehensively and scientifically and debate on the ground. That's why I see uh, one of the benefits and why I was encouraged uh, for uh, you know to to support this Abraham Accord, because I was hoping that through this kind of normalization that I will see experts from the Arab world uh, to go on ground and make studies, you know, and see and uh, see uh, actually on the ground from from actual uh, land perspective and people perspective whether the two state solution is doable or not. And then they can, can come uh, with potential with alternative solutions if the two-state solution is not doable. 
But to keep repeating, repeating the same thing or to depend on something that has been told 20 years ago without reviving it, to me, that will that will end it up and uh, will just keep it a talk. We don't want talk. We want actual things to be done. Yes, and then and actual things to be done. spelled already uh, in the smell. Yeah. You have to go on ground. You couldn't just meet in conferences. This is uh, actually when you when I do a study, I have to go on ground to make it. And it's only a study. Imagine that I'm making a policy making for such a long lasting conflict like this. Definitely, I couldn't just be, uh, you know, within uh, conferences. I have to go on the ground and see. And this is what actually encouraged me to go and visit over there. But uh, I need the support to to go out and be involved in such policy making. So that's why I made uh, I was constrained with the um, educational institutes. Uh, but uh, in order to make policy making, you have to go on ground. You have to test it and see whether it is doable or not. And you see the obstacles and you have to be really neutral from both sides, the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. If there are any obstacle of the two state solution, you have to tell us why. Is it leadership problem? Is it people problem? Are the people like accepting the two-state solution or they want it all, either all or nothing? So we have to know why it's not accomplished or more than 20 years uh, years ago. There must be, we want uh, uh, like uh, ground, uh, 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 ground uh, and the practical uh, reasons for that, not only what we observed through the media. Well, uh, Najat, I can just tell you that uh, I wish uh, that uh, you would serve uh, as a special advisor on behalf of the academy and expertise uh, on this uh, very important and vital process that otherwise it seems uh, very often, and I'm telling you this as a former politician myself, as a former member of Knesset, it seems to me a lot of time that these policies are just uh, driven uh, at the last moment <laughs> after some uh, night-long uh, meeting. Okay, let's, tr let's try this, let's try that without uh, thorough research and so on. So, but you know, if something uh, makes me feel that there is a way to promote, at least in the slightest way, uh, the solution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's precisely the uh, possible reconciliation between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Because as a heavy waiter, in addition, of course, to all other countries that have joined uh, the normalization process before, perhaps uh, this will be the critical weight that will be able to push uh, both sides uh, in the right direction, actually. Um, I would like to ask you, about uh, the changing realities in our region. So we see the, we saw the Abraham Accords and then the Gulf Turkey reconciliation and then uh, Gulf Iranian reconciliation. Um, is it uh, in a way a new Middle East uh, like the late president of Israel, Shimon Peres envisaged? And what do you think about uh, the, you know, future perhaps, uh, but so essential common Middle Eastern identity? that would be available and inclusive for all people and communities uh, in our region. For us in Europe, it's a long-term time dream. Well, um, for me, um, it is quite premature to definitely label it as a new Middle East because it happened very recent. We don't know what will happen. It might work and it might not work. And especially like a, a country like Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran, for example, they have been in conflict uh, 
as and I'm specifically here highlighting the Iranian regime uh, for many, many years. And this uh, recon uh, reconciliation just happened recently. We will we need to test it. Uh, is Iran gonna abide by what what it mm -hmm. happened? Is it gonna stop interference or not? We we still do not know. And even with Turkey, is Turkey is Erdogan gonna uh, remain and uh, and his party gonna remain uh, pragmatic? Thinking about uh, you know focusing on the uh, on the economic perspective and the good for his country or or the idea of uh, uh, of uh, supporting the Muslim Brotherhood will be revived again. So uh, we are still under testing. So that's why it's pre uh, premature to call it the new Middle East based on what happened recently. Uh, but uh, definitely, definitely you know greater cooperation will reduce the tension. And accordingly, when the, when the, when you reduce the tension, that will increase the peace. And when there's peace, uh, that means that there's better development and better economy. And that's our our main alternative goal: uh, more prosperity and better economy for our people, and the, the definitely better stability. Okay, so definitely cooperation, regional cooperation, is on the benefit of uh, uh, of everybody. However, um, you know. Um, you know, but the factors are still there. There's still the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It, it hasn't been resolved. Uh, there are uh, still regional rivalries between, for example, Iran and Turkey, between, uh, for example, the GCC countries and Iran still hasn't gone. The, the proxy wars are still there. Uh, the, Iran, uh, the, the, the Iranian impact on, on Lebanon, on Yemen, uh, on Syria, and Iraq are still there, uh, and 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 different and different political ideologies continue to shape the region's uh, dynamics. The, the ideologies have not gone. It's still, the it's, uh, the impact of uh, Islamism are uh, is still there. To overcome these obstacles, sustained commitment to diplomacy, resolution of existing conflicts, and broader regional stability are uh, are definitely needed. So so these are we uh, so we have definitely. We have to solve our problems diplomatically, and that's why I keep always, uh, you know, highlighting the importance of public diplomacy, uh, because uh, because the media can play a great role of uh, of either increasing this co cooperation or inflaming the uh, the political ideologies. Uh, so. Um, so while the recent developments are promising steps towards positive change in the Middle East, it remains a complex and evolving situation that will require ongoing efforts and negotiations to fully realize Shaman Perez's vision of a more peaceful and cooperation region. This is how I see it. I guess this uh, our uh, path ahead is long and full of challenges towards this uh our vision of a Middle East for all of us, but uh, we believe and we will continue to do this work and to push for integration, cooperation, uh, and for peace for everyone in this region, because it's for us and uh, we need to make sure we shape our own future. And thank you so much for your insights, Okhnaja. We really appreciate you and appreciate everything thank you've done. You. Thank you for inviting me and for this great discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed Robcast. Our podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Soundtrack, and all quality platforms. We are very grateful to all our listeners from the Middle East, Europe, the US, and from all across the world. 
You can support our work by small donation. More details on our website at ropes.org. And we also invite you to follow us on ropes.org on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads to find out more about our work with the, uh, with the emerging leaders from the Middle East. I'm Ibrahim Abu Ahmad. And I'm Ksenia Svetlova. Shalom. And salam.